Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg in our series on women in medicine is Professor Michelle Wong, who is a consultant physician and clinical head of the Division of Pulmonology in the Department of Medicine at Chris Hani Baragwanath Academic Hospital. Professor Wong is also the academic head of the Division of Pulmonology at the School of Clinical Medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of the Witwatersrand. Welcome to the show, Prof Wong. Thank you very much, Amalaya, and please call me Michelle. I'd prefer that. The average person breathes between 12 to 20 breaths per minute, and healthy individuals don't even think about breathing, but for asthmatics, for people with tuberculosis and other chronic lung diseases, breathing is a struggle. You wear several hats, as I mentioned, clinical head of the Division of Pulmonology at Chris Harney Baragwanath Academic Hospital and academic head of the Division of Pulmonology at WITS, which incidentally runs one of the largest pulmonology clinical services in the country. Please tell us more about the work that you do and responsibilities that come with holding these positions. Okay, well, perhaps to start off with my clinical service first, I am the head of the Division of Pulmonology, as you've mentioned, at Chris Hani Baragwanath Hospital. It may interest you that this is the third largest hospital in the world and the largest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, the Department of Medicine is divided into various subspecialties, of which pulmonology is just one. We deal with patients who have lung diseases. The whole Department of Medicine itself runs about 800 beds, so it's, it's a pretty large department. And my duties um, at the hospital are really to ensure that there's good clinical service delivery. And I'm also involved in teaching and supervising um, young doctors, interns, registrars who are then training to be general physicians, and then what we term fellows who are training to become pulmonologists. I also serve on, on some committees, such as the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. And um, I'm involved in, in, as I say, teaching and training, which is my joint appointment, my other hat, which is the academic head of the Division of Pulmonology at Fitz University. From that aspect, uh, it involves administration uh, related to universities, um, matters and training of, of um, staff. We need to ensure that standards are maintained academically and we also have to ensure that teaching is appropriate and that we conform to all the regulations um, for specialization and training of specialists and pulmonologists. One of my main aims is to try and ensure that one day when I leave, that I leave the, the division in good hands and that it can continue um, upscaling and improving uh, the, the work that it, it can do. So I, I do want to try and ensure that our younger staff are retained, uh, which is not always so easy, um, and that they are inspired enough to, to remain in the academic sector and in the public sector, which is also a challenge. As you were going through the descriptions of the work that you were doing, I was almost momentarily blown away on the reminder that the hospital is the third largest in the world. I mean, that is a, a massive, massive scale of, of the structure that you're in. 
Yes, it is. And sometimes when I think about it, it's quite a scary thought that I'm in charge of this division of pulmonology, the third largest hospital in the world. But it's an amazing hospital. Um, this is my 35th year in the hospital. I feel quite at home there. And uh, I think I've kind of adapted to working in the, in the environment. I think what, what has kept our hospital going is that we have an amazing um, complement of staff who are, are very dedicated um, and we have a very special kind of spirit within our department, which I think is fairly unique um, to, to our hospital. We've had a few of your colleagues from other divisions on the show previously. And in all cases, they, you know, they, they do seem to speak about this, this culture, the spirit, the, the glue that binds you there. I mean, 35 years, that's a, a phenomenal period of time. Yes, I think um, I'm part of the furniture now. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's home to me, as I say. Um, I don't think I, I could work anywhere else. Um, and I'd like to, to think that I'm part of that structure within our department that keeps people together and keeps the hospital going. Because without the support of one another, um, I think it would be very easy to become very despondent working in, in that sort of situation. And I agree, you know, I've always said it's not a place that every doctor can work at. Um, we've had many good doctors who just, you know, can't take that type of um, pace and that kind of pressure. One of the major things which is, I think we, it, it confronts us on a daily basis is the issue of COVID. And to date, globally, there have been 189 million infections, 4 million deaths. And in South Africa, figures, I think it was on Thursday this week, indicated that there were over 2.25 million cases and 66,000 deaths in our country. Firstly, as a doctor and an educator of medicine, how has life changed for doctors in the face of the COVID-19 outbreak? Well, we've had to change drastically. Um, first of all, we've had to restructure the way our department works. And as physicians, uh, as you know, in the Department of Medicine, we are bearing the brunt of the COVID pandemic because these are patients who require medical care by internal medicine specialists. So basically what we did from the beginning of the COVID um, epidemic was to divide our department into two teams. So we have, to have a COVID team and a non-COVID team because we still need to manage patients who do not have COVID. We did this so that we could rotate staff. Um, it was very stressful working in COVID um, and we were concerned that many people would burn out. There was also a lot of fear. Um, but interestingly enough, there've been some doctors who've loved being in COVID and some of them have been there since the beginning of the epidemic last year. It was really stressful from a number of points of view. I think as, as doctors whose aim is always to try and save and cure our patients, is that we knew very little about the disease. Um, and I must tell you, it's, it's the most amazing disease. I mean, it doesn't behave like anything else we've ever seen. At the same time as, as the stress of not knowing what to do, I think it's been exceptionally intellectually stimulating um, to learn about a, a totally new disease and to discover things along the way. And we've certainly learned a lot about how to manage them and about the, the way the disease actually affects the human body. Um, you know, in terms of, of other stresses, our staff were petrified, many of them, of, of acquiring the disease because we'd seen those um, TV footage from, from countries like Italy where um, people were dying in the streets. There were, you know, there were field hospitals set up in, in uh, Central Park in New York, for example, 
And we were petrified that we were going to be faced with something similar. Um, as you know, we were somehow spared um, to some extent. We didn't quite have the same impact in, in our first wave. But it was, it was very interesting for me to stand from the outside and look how, how various doctors reacted to this. Um, there were some who were, who were totally stressed out by it. Um, but we also had, we discovered many heroes and heroines who just took it upon themselves, uh, were very sensible, sensible about it, and actually rallied around and um, put a very positive impact on, on how we managed patients. In addition, from a patient point of view, it was, they were terrified. I mean, many of them thought they were going to die. They were isolated because we did not allow visitors to see them. And for me, one of the saddest things was that many patients died in the hospital without ever seeing their families um, again, um, and vice versa. So, you know, closure for families who have had relatives die um, has been an extremely um, stressful experience. We worked long hours. Um, in addition, we had to wear PPE, uh, which is something we were not that familiar with. So gowns, masks, visors, gloves. Um, and during the summer months, it was extremely hot. Uh, we don't have air conditioning at our hospital either. The, the social impact uh, upon the staff as well, you know, we, were, we tried to avoid all face-to-face -face meetings. Um, we had to learn to do virtual meetings and I think we got pretty good at that now, which has been a good spin-off, I think. There was also the, the need for us to self-educate. Um, as I say, this was a completely new disease. Um, so we had to, you know, when you, when you get home, um, check the internet, look up the, the latest uh, medical journals and see what's been reported so that we could learn ourselves how to deal with, with the patient with COVID. So it's, it's really, you know, been a major turnaround about uh, as to how we do things in the hospital. The world literally changed overnight. It went from one practice, normal approach to trying to transition everything into the virtual space. As you mentioned, we're now well into the third wave and having knowledge about this disease being in the field that you're in, do you predict there'll be subsequent waves? I think there will be. Um, as we've already seen, uh, viruses tend to mutate. I mean, that's part of the natural history. Uh, and I think, you know, the Delta variant that's with us now has been shown to be so much more infectious. I mean, for me, it's been extremely striking how many of our staff members and their families have contracted COVID. It's nothing like it was in the first and second waves. There may be some element of COVID fatigue, as we call it, where people have just become sick and tired of wearing PPE and perhaps are less careful. But I do think um, there's no doubt that the infectivity of this new variant is surpasses the first two. And the scientists tell us it's about 64% more transmissible than the previous variants that we were exposed to. Yes, I think the future is going to be probably something like influenza, where we may have to have vaccines every year because of, of different strains and variants. So I think we need to prepare ourselves for that. And from a point of the processes that you went through of, of changing behavior completely, do you think this has had a benefit to other practices and other disease management that you, you see in the hospital and the university? Most definitely. Um, you know, one of the important things about um, infections is what we call infection prevention and control. 
and we have people trained in, in this field, in infectious diseases, and they always struggled, for example, to get doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers to wash their hands after seeing a patient. I think what COVID has brought home is how important um, infection prevention and control is. And I, I think we've um, definitely improved that habit of washing hands. Wearing masks was something we never did before unless you were dealing, for example, with drug-resistant TB. But now wearing a mask is second nature to us. You know, it's, part of our, it's part of our face. Um, and I think that has been a good spin-off. In fact, if one looks at the, the statistics from the um, National Institute for Communicable Diseases, the incidence of influenza and other respiratory viruses has, has, is much lower than it was uh, in previous years prior to COVID for this time of year. So not only are we protecting ourselves against COVID, but we're also protecting ourselves against other um, respiratory, respiratory transmitted infections. So I think there have been some, some good uh, spin-offs um, and we need to just remember um, to protect ourselves all the time. I think that's the basic message. Yep, remaining vigilant and paying attention to, to the simple things. It's, it's Like you said, it's as simple as washing your hands and just practicing good hygiene and wearing masks when we are going out and potentially being exposed. As we know, the whole world is reeling from the effects of, of COVID-19 and the social and economic impact has been devastating. I mean, from a South African point of view, that's been further compounded by the, the wave of looting that we've had. But nonetheless, from a COVID point of view, some countries seem to cope better with the spread of the disease in its early stages than others. And I remember reading an article which looked at New Zealand, Finland, Germany, and Taiwan, and, and were really quite complimentary about their responses to the corona crisis. And interestingly, all those countries at the time were run by women like Jacinda Ardern, Sana Marin, Angela Merkel, Tsai Lin Weng. And they attribute some female management characteristics such as collaboration, transparency, empathy, and delegation for helping them build a safe base and working towards their, um, the, the success of trying to keep COVID at bay. Can you please share some of your views regarding women in leadership? Um, yes, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think one of the things about women as opposed to men who are in management and leadership positions is women do tend to have a naturally occurring maternal or nurturing instinct. Um, and I think we're also more likely to express our feelings um, than men. And we're not afraid to show our softer side which I, I think is a good thing. Um, I think, for example, at our hospital, that has, has helped um, garner the sort of camaraderie that we have in, in our department. Uh, we have a lot of strong women in our department. And in fact, um, the person that's leading our COVID team and has been in COVID since the beginning of, of the epidemic last year is a woman. And she's done an amazing job. Um, so I, I do think... We are maybe also a bit more organized than men, and I can speak from many years of experience with junior staff. We generally found that the female interns are far more organized than the male interns, for example. And, you know, it's, it's commonly thought that women can multitask. So I think that's to our benefit as well. So I, I think um, strong women have played an important role in this, in this pandemic. 
Um, I must admit, though, I think it's much harder for women in a career like medicine um, to pursue that career. And there are many women who actually drop out, sadly, uh, once they start their families. It's quite hard to come back uh, when you've got young children at home. So, you know, this is the whole debate about um, furthering women's careers in, in various professions. I think um, they have a tougher time. Um, and, and you'll see that many women in, in professions like, like medicine are single. Um, I'm single. My late mom used to say I'm married to Chris Hardy Baraguana. <laughs> but it's been my choice and, uh, you know, I, I enjoy what I do. Uh, I don't think I could have achieved what I have had I been married, although there are, there are many women in medicine who have managed to do both, you know, bring up a family and um, pursue an academic career. And I take my hat off to them. I think it's extremely difficult. Thinking about that point for a moment, it also speaks to the issue of having uh, an enabling and support, let's say a really strong support structure around you. Because if I think of men in contrast to women, if we think about this just for a moment on, on, on having children, that to a large degree, it's, it's kind of been child rearing has been the, the realm of women and responsibility of, of the wife. And he will just get on and get going with his career and, you know, keep moving up the rungs. Whereas women have had to sacrifice their own futures or, or let's say their own career aspirations because they have had to take care of children as, as a traditional mode. And I don't think that our systems are, are really equipped to help enable and, and support women more adequately. I totally agree with you. Um, you know, just simple things. I don't think many companies even in, in our country have considered this, but, you know, what about having a crash at work where you could leave your young baby um, and, you know, during your lunchtime or your tea break, uh, go down and just check that they're okay. Uh, I know some of my colleagues who were breastfeeding babies. It was extremely difficult. Um, some of them would try and, and find a little hole somewhere to express their breast milk that they could take home later. Uh, some of them had to stop breastfeeding. It was just too difficult, um, which I, I think is really sad when we are, um, you know, we try and promote breastfeeding for the first six months of life at least. Um, little things like it's always thought that it's the mom's job to take the kids to school. Um, <laughs> I don't see why the husbands can't do that. Um, and, and certainly in, in the, the, the young years of, of children, they probably do need their moms more than their dads. And I think uh, employers should try and consider ways of trying to make that a little easier for them. Uh, I think it's one reason why women do leave the profession or they, um, they take sort of, I don't want to say softer options in medicine, but um, they take on jobs where it's not so important to be punctual at work or to deal with emergencies or to, to do uh, night calls, for example. And for me, that's quite sad. I think we should have an equal opportunity for pursuing whatever interest we have without having to, to consider um, how they're going to, to juggle raising a family together with um, a career. And it's so interesting what you're saying here, because if I remember reading correctly, I think there was a, an article done by UN Women, which spoke about the fact that I think women have almost two thirds more unpaid labor than their male counterparts, that there just isn't an equal distribution. And whether that goes from looking after children or looking after elderly parents, all of these 
tasks seem to fall on, onto the shoulders of women in many ways. And many years ago, when we came about with our, our, our democracy, when I spoke to some of the older politicians, they said that in Parliament, there weren't even toilet facilities for women. It was all engineered around men. That they started to create creches, like you said, so that they could bring their children because they would be working long hours into the night. And that helped to develop more of an, an, an enabling support structure around them so that they could remain committed to the work that they're doing, but not compromise on, on their families. Also, and perhaps another way to do this would be to try and have a kind of a flexi time roster so that women can, for example, if they have to drop their children off at school, come to work a bit late and then perhaps make up the hours in, in another way. Um, but it, it is quite difficult in medicine because things tend to run better if they're regimented with specific times for starting things, uh, procedures, for example, and so on. And, you know, someone's got to do the night call. Um, and we can't expect the men to do all of those. I do agree with that. It's, a, it's an important part of training as well because it's often when emergencies uh, have to be dealt with and that's part of the learning experience as a doctor. Hi, this is Lyra, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, and democracy. Today, we are talking to Professor Michelle Wong. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Looking at your, your profile, you've, you had your MBBCH at the University of Witts in 1983. You uh, attained a diploma in uh, child health in 1986. In 1991, you admitted as a fellow of the College of Physicians. In 1995, a fellow of the American College of Chest Physicians. And in 2005, a fellow of the Royal College of uh, Physicians, London you've got an incredible track record of your qualifications that you've continued to evolve and, and develop. Can you tell us more about the role that education has played in your life? I think education is key um, in any, any, any aspect. Without education, you cannot uh, develop a country, for example. And it was something that was instilled in me by my parents. Um, I am South African born, um, but of Chinese origin. And my dad always um, maintained that education was the most important thing in life. Um, so it was promoted always. always school always came first. Um, and I think it's the only way to really equip people um, to be successful in life. When I looked at all the looting and violence that happened in the last few days, it just struck me again how important education is. You know, we have a lot of young people who are out of jobs. Um, many of them have probably never finished school. Um, those who are at school, uh, their schooling has been totally disrupted by COVID. I mean, I just cannot believe that you can provide an adequate education when children are going to school two or three times a week. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of our population do not have access to the internet, can't do online teaching. Um, there's no uh, possibility of homeschooling when your parents are working. Um, many of the the people in our community that we serve uh, have single parent families. 
Um, and there's so much poverty, poor nutrition, uh, difficulty with transport and so on. So I think, you know, we have a lot to, to do for the future of South Africa. Um, I still feel positive that we can try and overcome this. Um, for me, it's been amazing and reassuring to see how communities have rallied together in the face of, of this violence and looting. And I've seen some amazing videos um, of people coming together from all walks of life, all colors, all creeds, men and women, even children helping out. And I think that's one of the traits of South Africans. You know, we, we're able to sort of garner together and support one another. And I really hope that we can um, rebuild South Africa. It's going to take a long time, but I think we can do it. Um, you know, if I think back to some of the other major crises we've had in our country, such as the 1976 riots, which was related to, um, to education, we can get there, but it's, it's been really sad to see what has happened in the last few, few days. So I think education is key. I mean, it's the most important thing in our lives not only because of South Africa being a developing country, but even for developed countries. I mean, the only way to have a civilized population where everybody can contribute, everyone has good health, access to health care, live happy lives, um, see their children grow up. I think education is the most important thing. It's empowering. It's, it's tools that equip you and Everything that you've said there, it really pulls and, and tugs at my heart. I think of the, the generation to me that's been impacted most in our country has been the youth from an education point of view. Because like you say, what, what are you going to learn in three days at school, if that? And the amount of interruptions that they've had in their cycles. And they, the, the fact is that we do not have accessible internet, broadband widely distributed to all communities. And even if it was a case that you had internet widely available, you don't have devices that are, are, are going to suit you to, to learn properly. Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's quite embarrassing that even at our own hospital, we do not have um, widespread Wi-Fi. Most of us use our own cell phones, our own data to, for example, access laboratory results on our patients and so on. And I really think we need to try and work and, and, and you know, aim to, to be a first world country. Um, and it's not so difficult to put in infrastructure for Wi-Fi and so on, but it is costly. And, you know, when we have copper cables being stolen and that kind of thing, one has to consider all those uh, elements as well. But I think one of the most important things is to, is to move into, um, into the modern world, which we can do. We just need someone to put the, the plan together and to provide us with the infrastructure. I think this should be one of the, the most important priorities that the government needs to look at. Um, you know, virtually everybody in, in the Soweto community that our hospital serves, and I mean, they're a poor community, virtually everyone has a cell phone. Um, and so there's no reason why we, we shouldn't, uh, you know, move into the technological world. Just because someone hasn't had uh, um, a full education at school doesn't mean they won't be able to learn how to use a cell phone or the internet. And I think it will empower people in, in so many ways to try and improve themselves. Of course it will. And sometimes I, I often think that if access to internet shouldn't become a human right because of what it provides and 
I couldn't imagine my life without the internet. I mean, we, we wouldn't be having this conversation today without the internet. Sure. Uh, I like your idea of this becoming a human right. <laughs> We're coming towards the latter part of the show now. And one of the questions that I ask all my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields is about some of the factors that they consider have contributed to their success. Some people speak about values, others talk about hard work and perseverance. Please, can you tell us what have been some of the key drivers to your success? Uh, I would probably say, say the same things. Um, the way you brought up, and I think it's very important to instill good values in your children. Um, it goes with good education, obviously. Um, and, you know, my, my grandparents who came to this country had, didn't have much of an education, but they were hard workers. And they managed to, to support all their children. Um, not all of them managed to get a tertiary education, but they enabled them to empower themselves and support themselves so that in turn they could support their children. Um, and so my generation um, of Chinese uh, people who came to this country, most of us have you know, a tertiary education, I would say, even that. Um, and most of us have been able to do well um, and contribute to society. I think that's really important. Um, I think it's also the people that you surround yourself with, the sort of community that you grow up in. And I th yeah, I, th I would say probably, you know, if you have good values from the beginning of your life and you have a sense of working hard and achieving what you can. I mean, not everyone has the same IQ. Not everyone is good at, at all things. And we need everybody in, in this country. We don't need everybody to go to university, for example. Um, and we need to have an appreciation of people in all walks of life because everyone has to contribute in different ways to society. It's nice to have uh, mentors, um, if you're lucky enough to have a good mentor. Role models, I think, are exceptionally important. Um, you know, for example, one of the things that I'm trying to do and the university is also trying to do is gender and racial transformation uh, and there are very few black role models in our in our profession um, and that is something I'm trying to develop. Unfortunately it's also you know a historical uh, fault if I can call it that in that um, when we have had our black uh, colleagues um, achieve what they have done and it's amazing how many of them have, have managed to pursue a career in medicine despite coming from a very poor impoverished background, is it's very hard to retain them in academia and in the public sector. Um, I'm sure you know about black tax. I mean, it's a real thing for many of them. And that has forced many of them to leave academia and the public sector and to pursue a career in, in the private sector where they're able to earn a little more money and to support their families. So, yeah, as I say, role models are very important and, you know, one of my aims is to try and develop more women and more um, black doctors within our public and academic sectors so that we can, in the future, have more role models and encourage others to stay. It will happen um, because as more and more uh, of our black and women doctors um, achieve their, their dreams, their level of economic security will improve because they now have a secure job. And so their children, it will be a much easier uh, life for, for them to go ahead in the same way. 
you've got such a dedication to the work that you do and not just you know i'm talking from a not just the patient aspect but the development side of things and the the philosophy of of grooming for succession for the next generation that is going to take over the the hospital and and its running and the generations to come in the future please can you share some pivotal moments of your life growing up i grew up in in tebeha or port elizabeth as it was formerly known a smallish town i had a, a very conservative but a really good upbringing which i'm always grateful for i attended a convent school where i think again very good values were instilled in in us as, at that school um and i grew up in apartheid years so for example uh, i wasn't allowed to attend any school um this is why my parents put me in a, a private school we weren't allowed to attend public schools we weren't allowed to to go to public libraries for example um the beaches were restricted to chinese and other non-whites and where it really hit home was when i matriculated and i applied to go to university and as a non-white citizen i had to obtain ministerial consent from the minister of education and it suddenly dawned on me you know what if he refused me to go to university what was i going to do i really wanted to do medicine uh and if he hadn't given me that permission i wouldn't be able to go but anyway be that it is as it may um i'm here i think one should always be prepared to work hard for something and you know once you've earned something it's so much more meaningful i think you know i'm often some sometimes a bit critical about the younger generation because i think many of them have been given things on a plate at least those in affluent communities and i find that many of the millennials and it's not not all of them of course but they often feel entitled and they don't want to work hard for something um for me working hard for something is so much more of an achievement than being given something on a plate because you don't appreciate it as much um and i would like to to encourage perhaps the listeners um who do have children to remember that i think your children should not be spoiled brats because many of them are and i think that's a recipe for disaster <laughs> for example at our university you know this we used to attend lectures um and we would take our own notes and then go and read up around it afterwards these days when we give a lecture the students insist on having printed notes from the lecture and i just think you know it's it's allows them to not even attend the lecture because they know they will get the the notes and for me attending a lecture you learn far more i don't know there's that face to face kind of meeting and sharing of ideas it's it's very different to to reading something from a textbook i know many of my my colleagues say you know i didn't go to lectures and i passed medical school but for me I, i found that listening to a lecturer who was an expert in in a topic and could um dissect out and synthesize the important aspects of a particular topic that was far more valuable than reading it from a textbook because because a textbook doesn't give you um some kind of scale as to what is more important than something else but uh, not everyone agrees with me <laughs> um but that's my feeling on on lectures and and students demanding notes um and you know when you set exams now they want to make sure that everything that was said in the lecture is in the notes it doesn't work like that i'm afraid you know it's it's impossible to cover everything in a lecture and certainly in the medical profession things are always changing and developing 
And it's up to us as doctors to keep up with, with what is new. There's no ways you can be a doctor and uh, have knowledge from 20 years ago and be able to manage patients adequately. Uh, it's, it's a profession where ongoing learning is crucial. And it's expected. I mean, no one would want to see a doctor who had, who'd last looked at a book or been exposed to some form of education that's 20 years old. We're all looking for the right expertise, expertise and, and to be treated accordingly. Yes, exactly. But you don't know <laughs> when you go see your doctor. You don't know when they last picked up a, a journal article. Oh, gosh. Now, now you have me worried. And lastly, as we close out our conversation today in honor of Mandela Day, please, can you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women in Africa that are, are listening to us? Well, let me just say that Nelson Mandela was the most amazing human being. Um, I'm very humbled that I come from a country where he was one of our leaders. Uh, his life is, is amazing. Um, to be jailed for that amount of time and to be able to come out and forgive the people who put him there is something that I think is exceptional. Um, and of course, there are many, many quotations that people um, quote from, from his sayings. And I did pick out one that you, because I knew you were going to ask me about Mandela. And it's that education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And I think really that's been the message of the, the interview today. I, I can't stress that enough. And uh, yes, I think Mandela was, was an amazing icon for all of us. And uh, we should use his example to live our lives in a similar way. Thank you for that wonderful message. It's really relevant, particularly in the, the times that we're living through today. It's been a pleasure having you on our show. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Emile. It's, it's my pleasure too. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Michelle Wong, the clinical head of the Division of Pulmonology at Prishani Baragwanath Academic Hospital and the academic head of the Division of Pulmonology at the University of the Witwatersrand.